The first reading is from Ezekiel 47, verses 1 and 6 to 12. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. He said to me, Mortal, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river. As I came back, I saw on the bank of the river a great many trees on the one side and on the other. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the sea, the sea of stagnant waters, the water will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish once these waters reach there. It will become fresh, and everything will live where the river goes. People will stand fishing beside the sea, from Engidi to Enaglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of a great many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. The second reading is from Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Our next reading is from John 21, verses 1 to 17. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not, did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. 
Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let me tell you a bit about Simon. He's always full of bright ideas, which seem to him in the moment that he has them to be brilliant and compelling. And he can't quite understand why everyone else doesn't follow his lead immediately. Experience has shown him that more often than not, he's on the money with whatever insight or idea has just popped into his head, but that just sometimes he's heading off down a dead end and will need to backtrack to get back on the right course again. But that doesn't stop the ideas coming, and it doesn't make him any less enthusiastic about today's big plan. The thing you need to know about Simon is that what he's doing now is never enough. And so he's always running on ahead in his mind to what comes next. And another thing, Simon likes to perform. He likes to do well and to be seen as a leader, or at least at the center of things. And actually, he does quite well in most of the things he turns his hand to, and he ends up as the leader of a significant church. But there's a brittleness there that it can be hard to spot at first glance. The competent, confident veneer hides a fear of failure that can be all-consuming. Because deep down, Simon is afraid that he can only be loved for what he does, not for who he is. And so Simon needs to learn that being is more important than doing, and that even though he is often successful at what he does, and even though the Lord is with him in many of his projects and ideas, sometimes he has to learn to let go of all the effort, to relax, to discover that he's loved not for what he does, but for who he is. Does this sound like anyone you know? I'm talking, of course, about Simon Peter in John's Gospel, and any similarities to anyone else, living or dead, are purely coincidental. Well, we'll see. In today's sermon, we come to the last in our series, looking at the meals of Jesus, which has taken us on our journey up to and through harvest. If you haven't heard them all, you can download them on our podcast. 
We've seen how Jesus disrupted power structures by eating with the wrong kind of people and by sitting people in the wrong places at the table or by allowing the wrong kind of activities to take place around the table. But today's meal, the breakfast on the beach, with just a handful of disciples, is a different kind of story. Here we meet Jesus in a far less public and more intimate setting, just him and some of his friends quietly having some fish and some bread early one morning on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We don't even know the names of all those present. But there's surely some significance in the fact that there are seven of them, because this is John's Gospel, and the way he writes, the little details, which includes the numbers he uses, carry levels of significance far beyond the obvious. So if seven was the Jewish number of perfection, then the seven friends who are sat on the beach with Jesus are probably to be understood as in some way representative of all those who would be Jesus' followers. And here, immediately, with this little clue, we start to find ourselves invited into the world of the story. If the seven friends on the beach stand for all disciples, then they also stand for us. And we're invited in our imaginations to begin to picture ourselves on the beach with Jesus. Perhaps as one of the two unnamed disciples whose identities have been omitted by the author so we can fill that gap with our own face. Or maybe we see ourselves as one of the named disciples. Maybe Maybe Simon Peter resonates with you. He does with me. Or maybe doubting Thomas. Maybe we see in their reaction to Jesus an echo of our own personality, of our own response to Jesus. The story of the breakfast on the beach sits within the narrative structure of John's Gospel as part of a a little concluding section where a number of loose ends are wrapped up. Scholars tell us that it may have been added at some point after the gospel was first written, just to kind of tie up a few things that were were left unanswered by an original ending. But if that's the case, it certainly happened very early. Immediately before uh, this story of the breakfast on the beach, we meet doubting Thomas, if you just turn back a page in your Bible, getting to put his finger in the wounds of the crucifixion on Jesus' body with his doubts finally being answered. And then immediately after it, we have Simon Peter being brought face to face with the abject failure of his threefold denial of Jesus around the charcoal fire of the high priest's courtyard as Jesus speaks to him over a charcoal fire on a beach and three times forgives him and commissions him for further service. And these two key characters, the doubter and the denier, Thomas and Peter, they're both present in the boat, and they, with the five other disciples, are those who get to share this breakfast with Jesus on the beach that morning. And I think it's these two characters and what they represent who provide us with a key to understanding our passage this morning. 
And it is a strange little story, isn't it? It feels almost comic in the way it's told. I mean, it's almost impossible not to have a laugh at the idea of Simon Peter sitting there naked and then deciding to throw on his clothes before jumping into the sea. I mean, you read it very straight, Charlie, but I mean, you could have, you could have played that one for laughs, I'm sure. It's typical Simon Peter, isn't it? It just seemed like a good idea at the time. The naked part wasn't so unusual, as apparently on a mild night fishing from a boat, it was quite usual to strip off if you were in and out of the water. But the decision that if that's Jesus on the shore, then he better put some clothes on, followed immediately by the decision to jump into the water and swim to the shore rather than waiting for the boat to paddle in, is classically Simon Peter in both planning and execution. And in fact, Simon Peter is the driving character in this narrative. It's his personality and character that move the action at every turn towards its conclusion. It starts with Simon and the others gathered in Galilee. We're not told why they're there, but we know that we're a week or three after the resurrection, and it seems that some of the disciples at least have made a journey north from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, back to where it all started. They're all gathered there, and suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, Simon announces, I'm going fishing. It's like he can't sit still. The weight is killing him. So he jumps up and sets off. And I wonder how many of us are like Simon. As you will have gathered from my introduction to the sermon, where I may have revealed more than I wanted to, but anyway, I know I have tendencies in this direction. Sometimes any activity is better than no activity because doing is infinitely preferable to just being. And because Simon is a natural-born leader, where he goes, others tend to follow. So he says, I'm off fishing, and the others go, well, we'll come too. And they set off with him. And of course, for a character like Simon Peter, the success of a night's fishing will be determined by how many fish have been caught. I'm told that there are those who go fishing for the tranquility of the experience. To sit beside a lake, contemplating the beauty of creation and meditating on the delights of solitude. And going home with an empty bucket is just fine. There may even have been those on the boat that night with Simon who were happy enough just to come along for the ride, regardless of whether any fish were caught, because it was a warm night and they wanted some company. But Simon is definitely there to catch fish. He's there to be productive. He's stripped off, ready for action, and if there's going to be any diving in to be done, he's ready to do it. And so after a night on the lake, he's caught nothing. From Simon's perspective, at least, I'm sure this is a wasted night. It's a night of failure. And failure in Simon's world is the ultimate shame. And then as darkness turns to light, Jesus appears on the shore unrecognized at first. Now, I can't tell whether he says it in a sarcastic tone or not, but his question, children, you have no fish, have you? is certainly a rhetorical question designed to prick away at the moody failure of Simon and maybe the others to be productive in their task of fishing. Their sullen, single-word reply of no, highlights the humor again of the moment. They're like sulky teenagers owning up to something shameful. 
No, we haven't caught any fish. And then in an echo of a very similar story from Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells them to let the nets down on the other side. And we're not told how Simon, the experienced fisherman, responded to this instruction shouted by a stranger on the shore. But I can imagine that he was muttering something about grandmothers and eggs as he gave it one last go and let the nets down on the other side of the boat. But I think it says something about Simon's desire to succeed at all costs, that he was even willing to give it a go. That little voice that sometimes won't let us give up, even when we know we should have walked away long ago, encouraged him to give it just one more try. And lo and behold, a net full of fish. Ta-da! A miracle. But more than this, from Simon's point of view, a result. Success. For Simon, the night is redeemed. His decision to lead them out onto the lake fishing is justified. He's done something worthwhile. His value is restored and his shame is set aside. And we could leave it there. But because this is John's gospel, there are layers upon layers of meaning to unpick in this story before we get to the heart of things. It's not just a miracle story. There are no such thing in John's Gospel as just a miracle story. There are always signs and signifiers of something else. So firstly, there's the whole metaphor layer of fishing. Yes, at one level, it's a story where Jesus does a miracle and the disciples recognize him. But fishing is not a neutral image. It's not a neutral image in the Gospels, and it's indeed not a neutral image within the Jewish scriptural tradition either. In both Mark and Matthew's Gospels both written and popular some decades before John's Gospel gets written. Uh, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus' calling of Simon Peter and his uh, brother Andrew to be his disciples is accompanied by the promise that they will leave their fishing nets and become fishers of people. Fishing is a metaphor. And in the prophetic writings of the Jews, fishing is also an image or a metaphor used for bringing people to judgment. There's the image of people being caught in fish-like nets and brought to give account for their life. There's another image of people being caught with like a fish hook in their cheek and dragged before God. You can go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Habakkuk if you're interested in that kind of stuff. So we might say that fishing here is a metaphor for something more. Maybe a metaphor in the early Christian community for mission, just as it often is in our world. We'll often speak of Fishing as a metaphor for mission. And our story from John's Gospel invites its readers to reflect on their own experience of fishing for people. So we're talking here about a Gospel that's written for the early church somewhere in the 90s. So we're 50-ish 50, years, maybe slightly more after the time of Jesus. Christianity has spread out into the Roman Empire. We're in a world where Christianity is trying to reach out not just to the Jewish community, but to the Gentile community. It is of some small comfort to me that it seems to have been the experience of this early first century church that it was possible to spend all night fishing and come back with no results. It seems they found mission as hard as we do. 
And that's why a story about fishing all night and getting no fish resonated with them at the metaphorical missional level. I mean, you know, I long for a full church. I really do. I long for a day when I get to stand up there so that the people sat up there can all see me, not just down here. But not just that, I long for a world where we extend to many people the love and acceptance of Christ, because that's really what it's about, isn't it? Not just filling a building. I mean, it'd be great if lots of people came because they knew that they were loved and accepted and welcomed. I long for a world where we join together with many others in bringing the good news of liberation to a world where so many are living in darkness and pain. And because I long for those things, I feel the lure of a program-driven approach to mission, where we adopt the right formula or implement the right systems in order to get the right results come flooding in. You name the program, I've probably read the book. And I have this little voice on my shoulder encouraging me to give it one more go, to try letting the nets down again, because maybe this time it will be different. Perhaps this time if we run the Alpha course in a different way, or perhaps this time if we adopt the purpose-driven approach, or maybe if we do the natural church development program, one last go coming at its side. Maybe this time, and who knows, maybe it will. It might be. I mean, Simon Peter had a night of darkness and no results and then netted a great catch with the final throw of the dice. Who's to say we won't be the same? Who's to say we won't suddenly find ourselves with 153 new fish by the morning? Who's to say that our failure may not yet be redeemed by success? But this story challenges such ways of thinking because it turns out that it's not about the catch at all. When Simon Peter gets to the shore, fully clothed and soaking wet, leaving the others to haul in and count the fish, he discovers that Jesus has already got a fire going with fish roasting and bread ready. The catch, impressive though it is, isn't the point. By the way, for those of you who are wondering about 153, uh, will you please excuse me just for one moment if I put on my mathematical geek hat? Uh, Philip, you're a mathematician. Am I right in thinking 153 is, a tri is the 17th triangular number? <laughs> I believe I am. <laughs> um, if you go back into our Old Testament reading, uh, it named two little springs, En Gedi and En something else, whose name has momentarily gone out of my head. If, uh, the Jews had a tradition of taking the consonants of the word, because they didn't write the vowels, and you could translate them into numbers. So it'd be a bit like, do you ever do that thing when you were a kid and you'd, you know, A is one, B is two, C is three, D is four, and you'd work out the numbers of your name and then add them together, and you get a number. The, they were, the, the Hebrews would love that stuff. Um, and if you do uh, that with one of those springs, it comes to 17, and you do it with the other one, it comes to 153. And here we've got 153 fish, and 17 by 17 by 17 in a triangle gives you 153. It's just John playing with numbers. I mean, my, my guess is he's the kind of man who would have loved cryptic crosswords if they'd been around in the first century, but they didn't, so he played with numbers. But he's sending the signal that he's referring to that Old Testament passage that we had read, and it's just linking things together using numbers. It's an impressive catch. It's 153 fish that wouldn't otherwise have been there. But it isn't the point. And in a world where we are what we do, 
and where we're only ever as good as our most recent achievement. The story of the breakfast on the beach causes us to stop and consider whether Jesus actually needs us to put in all that effort to be successful, either as individuals or as a church. What if, actually, we're just loved for who we are and not for what we do? What if we're loved whether we're successful or not? What if Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church is just loved to bits by God, whether we have 53 or 153 or 1,053 on a Sunday morning? We'd need a bigger building, but it could be managed. What if our fixation on productivity and effectiveness is irrelevant to the love that God has for us and for his world? And what if the sea and all that is in it, all those fish out there, what if the sea and all that is in it already belongs to God, and our efforts at fishing are at best tangential to his greater purposes? There's a spiritual writer from earlier in the 20th century called Evelyn Underhill, and she said that we spend most of our lives conjugating three verbs, to want, to have and to do, while the fundamental verb of the spiritual life is to be. What if our desires and our possessions and our actions are nowhere near as important as they seem to us? What if our being in God is all that ultimately matters? What would it take for us to learn to let go? to set aside our desire for success and our drive to achieve. For Simon Peter, it took a moment of great failure, followed by a moment of great love, to learn that he was valued for who he was and not for what he did. The denial of Jesus in public in the courtyard of the high priest's house as they gathered round the charcoal fire to keep warm as Jesus was going towards his trial and crucifixion. Peter's denial of Jesus at that point was the moment of ultimate public shame and failure for him. For a man of his personality to be caught out in that way would have been a disaster of unimaginable proportions as his self-image was destroyed before his eyes. And yet, from his failure came his forgiveness by Jesus and his recommissioning over the bread and the fishers round the fire on the beach. And Simon learned that lesson which can only really be learned by going through it, which is that failure sets you free. Free to be loved for who you are, not for what you do. Faithful discipleship is not about achievement or productivity, it is about faithfulness. And I suspect that's more about the faithfulness of God than it is about our faithfulness to God. And the vision of a net full to the brim but not breaking is a vision of the kingdom of God where all are welcome, with no one feeling threatened by anyone else's inclusion. In the uh, miraculous catch of fish in Luke's gospel, the nets start to break. The, the institution can't cope with the numbers. In John's Gospel, it's just like, no, it's fine. Whoever comes, doesn't matter. They're fine. 
doesn't break. The vision of Ezekiel that we read earlier that John refers to in his numerical number games offered a vision of a world transformed where the dry and dusty land between Jerusalem and Jericho is brought to life with the salt waters of the Dead Sea teeming with fish at the fresh water that is flooding into it from the streams at En Gedi and En the other one whose name I can't remember. The barren banks verdant with trees. The kingdom of God is about the transformation of the earth and it's about the salvation of all things and it's about the healing of the nations as creation itself is redeemed. And so the trees that grow there and with a tree which grows in the great vision at the end of the book of Revelation whose leaves are for the healing of the nations offer a vision of creation-based spirituality where all of creation is groaning for the salvation that comes from the Lord. And this is a very long way from successful church growth strategies, and it's a very long way from personal or corporate achievement. The transformation of the earth comes about in Ezekiel's vision through the pure, clear water which flows from the temple in Jerusalem. And in the book of Revelation, the temple in Jerusalem becomes the people of God the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven to the earth. It is the people of God who are the source of life to the earth. And the blessing that flows through us is a blessing that brings renewal and refreshing to all. And it isn't something we can manufacture or perform. Rather, it's the gracious gift of the love of God which invites us to discover what it is to be truly loved for who we are, so that others may discover what it is to be truly loved for who they are. And any religion or form of faith that requires any of us to be something other than that which we have been created to be is ultimately a hollow shell of a faith that brings judgment and not blessing. We are loved. You are loved. Here's the one I find hard to say. I am loved. This is the gospel of Christ who invites us to discover new life with him as we join him for a breakfast on the beach. <laughs>